Welcome to Above Avalon. This is episode 101, iPhone Turns 10. Hi, I'm Neil. This week marks the 10th anniversary of Apple launching the iPhone. Everyone seems to have a different story regarding the iPhone. For some people, this week brings back memories of standing in line, waiting to get that first iPhone 2007. For other people, the iPhone really wasn't on the radar in 2007. Some people, it took a number of years to buy that first iPhone. And of course, we have people buying their first iPhone today in 2017. In this episode, we're going to mark the iPhone's 10th anniversary in a little bit of a different way. We're going to look at how the iPhone changed Apple. So in the beginning, we'll go over some numbers just to kind of put some context over how big the iPhone has become for Apple. But then we're going to look at some lessons that I think Apple has learned over the past 10 years. These lessons are going to be crucial in determining where Apple's headed next. What are the new products? What are the new industries? The iPhone fundamentally altered the way Apple views the world and measures ambition. That ambition is needed when Apple's contemplating new industries. We also see Apple's approach to controlling both iPhone hardware and software. It's a bet that is still giving competitors headaches a decade later. And so we'll talk about how Apple's now placing bets that I think won't just be measured in years, but will be measured in decades. To kick things off, let's look at a couple of numbers. In particular, there are three sets of numbers that stand out when thinking about 10 years of iPhone. The first, unit sales. So on a cumulative basis, Apple has sold 1.2 billion iPhones to date. The issue with that number is that it's very difficult to put into context. It's difficult to grasp the magnitude of that number. One reason is we're used to the iPhone doing well. You can go back to 2015, 2014. Apple's selling more than 150 million iPhones per year. That's a large number in and of itself. So one way that I handled this sort of difficult task here and put in context to 1.2 billion iPhones is I look back at Apple's founding in 1976. And I thought to myself, well, how many devices did Apple sell from 1976 all the way up until the iPhone launch in 2007? The two major categories were Macs and iPods. Now, the iPod number, that's easy to get. We have financial filings. We can go back and just add up iPod sales per year. The Mac number, though, is a little bit more tricky. Getting numbers all the way back to the 80s, early 90s, that's not exactly the easiest thing. So after kind of doing some research online, I was able to come across the data in which you can track Mac sales per year pretty much since Apple was founded in 1976. In total, Apple sold approximately 180 million devices between 1976 and 2007. It breaks out to about 70 million Macs and 110 million iPods. If you look at iPhone sales today, 
Apple's trending right around 215 million iPhones per year. So they're selling more iPhones per year today than they did when you look at the entire product base between 1976 and 2007. I think that kind of begins to put how big the iPhone has become from a sales perspective. Now, if we assume Apple can ship 200 million iPhones per year for the next few years, and I think that's pretty conservative. I think if you're more on the aggressive side, you may think Apple can sell 250 million iPhones per year. But if we stick to 200 million per year for the next few years, Apple is on track to sell its 2 billionth iPhone at some point in 2020. 2 billion iPhones. I have a feeling Apple's going to probably mark that occasion with a pretty big event at the time. The next data point is revenue. So we have Apple selling 1.2 billion iPhones to date, with an average selling price exceeding $600 that translates to the iPhone bringing $743 billion of revenue to Apple. If we look out a little bit further, I think Apple's on track to report $1 trillion of revenue from iPhone, probably somewhere before the end of 2018. The interesting thing about iPhone revenue is here you have a device where the average selling price is increasing as time goes on. When you're considering the bear case facing the iPhone, maybe we should say the financial bear case facing the iPhone, Wall Street was primarily concerned with declining margins and also declining average selling price. The logic behind that thinking was that as the smartphone market matured, you would have competition. Apple would be forced to lower pricing, lose margin in order to keep its customers, in order to actually keep the business together. As we have seen, that didn't pan out. Instead, what Apple was able to do was actually increase iPhone pricing over time. Margins appear to be fine. Yes, there's some moving parts within that picture. Some of them are offsetting each other, certain material costs, foreign exchange. But the big picture is margins have been okay. The item that I don't think a lot of people contemplated was having the iPhone's average selling price increase over time. I think most people were thinking, even if Apple had to lower iPhone pricing, they would be able to maintain the margin itself. So yes, maybe the margin dollars decline just because it's a lower selling price, but the percentages remain the same. What's happening here, though, is iPhone pricing is increasing over time, at least the upper skews. It's going to be very likely that in September, we're going to see the first $1,000 iPhone SKU in the U.S., we're almost there now as it is. So I don't think it's too controversial a statement. But as we talked about a few episodes ago with iPhone evolution, the iPhone's role in our life is evolving as time goes on. This is a device that is actually capturing more value in our life. I don't think too many people saw that coming. The last data point to consider on the iPhone's 10th anniversary is profit. Unlike iPhone revenue, which is disclosed every three months, we don't have disclosure around iPhone profit. There's a few reasons for that, but the main one is there is no such thing as the iPhone business having its own profit and loss. It doesn't work like that. Everything is combined. 
So there isn't a way to look at Apple's costs and then figure out well, what costs were found with the iPhone, what were associated with Apple Watch or iPad. That's not how we do it. Instead, we can estimate. We can look at what Apple's overall gross margins are. Apple reports that every quarter. We can look at where Apple's revenue is coming from. Again, Apple discloses that. And we could back into a pretty fair estimate for what the iPhone gross margin is. And that's approximately 45%. For some iPhone versions, that percentage could be higher. For others, it could be lower. In addition, you could have a trend where over time, you may see margin increasing or decreasing, but for simplicity purposes, I think 45% is a pretty good estimate. And so what I did was I took that 45% gross margin percentage and I simply applied it to iPhone revenue. And that resulted in being able to graph iPhone profit. So this is gross profit. From launch in 2007, Apple has earned approximately $330 billion of gross profit from iPhone sales. That's a pretty big number. <laughs> now, on a net income basis, again, this is more estimating, in which we are now taking into account all of those R&D costs, the selling and admin costs, taxes, all of those pretty fun line items. When you take that into consideration you come up with a net income number associated with the iPhone. If I compare that number to the net income of Amazon and Facebook and Google during the same time period from 2007 to 2016, essentially, the iPhone has brought in 1.5 times more profit than the combined profits of those three companies. That's pretty remarkable. And it just goes to show what it means for Apple to have a monopoly on smartphone profits. There aren't too many people, especially hardware manufacturers, who are making money in smartphones. So those are the three sets of data that I think do a good job at framing 10 years of iPhone. Now, of course, the most intriguing impact from the iPhone cannot be measured or quantified if you're looking at sales, revenue, income. I don't think they could be graphed in any kind of chart. Instead, the iPhone has contributed so much to preparing Apple for the future, in particular for preparing Apple for future pivots into new industries. I think there are three items that stand out when we're looking at lessons Apple has learned from the iPhone. Ambition, control, and platform. And so we're going to take a few minutes to look at each one of those items. And we'll start off with ambition. Prior to 2007, Apple was primarily a computer company. They sold Macs and Mac accessories. We can circle back to one of those early videos of Steve Jobs touring the first Apple retail store. Notice the products that Apple was selling. It was the Mac. In 2007, the company had really only recently begun to see broader consumer appeal with the iPod. 
What this means is that in the mid-2000s, the idea of Apple launching its own telephone was a bit crazy. Apple had no expertise in mobile telephones, mobile carriers. This is truly a computer company. So on paper, Apple really shouldn't have been able to come up with something like the iPhone. Most people would agree the company did not have certain core competencies for selling a great phone. And those last two words are very important. Great phone. If we go back right before the iPhone was unveiled, you had former Palm CEO Ed Callaghan talking about the prospects of Apple entering his industry, entering the mobile phone industry. And a lot of people have talked about this comment. It's pretty amazing. He looked at Apple as never being able to learn as much about phones as established phone players. So here's his comment. We've learned and struggled for a few years here figuring out how to make a decent phone. PC guys are not going to just figure this out. They're not going to just walk in. Now there's a pretty big hole in his logic there. (laughs) Phones were going to become computers. Either he didn't see it or he didn't think that was going to be as big of a deal as it really turned out to be. So instead of Apple worrying about becoming a good phone maker, what really should have been happening is phone makers should have been worrying about becoming good computer makers. And so if we go back to that statement from a minute or two ago, Apple didn't have the required core competencies for selling a great phone. The thing is, they had quite a few core competencies when it came to selling great computers. Over the past 10 years, we've had a few accounts as to how iPhone development began in Apple. Management began to look at what could derail its iPod sales trajectory, because this was a product that was really blowing up. And so a lot of people, they would put the iPod in their pocket to listen to music. But what was happening was more and more people were putting another device in their pocket, a cell phone. And so the fear was that over time, people could just listen to music on their cell phones, and that would begin to impact iPod sales. And this is also when Apple began to say, well, everyone's using cell phones, but these things, they're not really that fun to use with. So it was really a combination. It was both the fear of iPod sales going down because of phones, and also this desire to rethink the phone make it something that we actually wanted to use. And so that kicked off iPhone development. And this is where Apple learned about phones, mobile carriers, and also about itself. Now, of course, that learning did not stop when Apple began selling the iPhone in 2007. In subsequent years, we had Apple going through lessons as to how to make a great phone, how to make a phone that doesn't drop calls. It seems like we really have forgotten those early years and all the issues found with the phone part in iPhone. But over time, a trend developed. Apple's long-standing strengths in building computers, both hardware and software, they began to move up. They began to gain importance. And those were the items that ultimately gave Apple the advantage over BlackBerry and all of the other giants in the smartphone industry. If we look at what Apple's doing today, they're approaching new industries 
in a very similar way to how they approached the mobile phone industry in the mid-2000s. For example, the Apple Watch. Apple wanted to rethink wristwatches. And so what they had to do was learn quite a bit about fashion and luxury. They had to figure out how to get people to wear gadgets on their bodies. Two years later, it feels like we just assume, oh yeah, Apple can come out with wearables and people are okay putting them on their wrist. That was not a given just a few years ago. In fact, the idea of putting a computer on your wrist was pretty controversial. Most people were thinking of some type of bulky screen that really didn't seem too appealing. Apple completely changed the game. Very few people talk about that. We also have Apple looking at the transportation industry, a topic that we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast. This is a sector that hasn't seen much change in 100 years. This is a sector that Apple does not have a lot of experience in. It's maybe even safe to say Apple has no experience in health and medical. Another industry that Apple is very quickly running towards and another industry that Apple just doesn't have a lot of experience in. So if you take all of these different product categories and all of these industries and you combine them, wearables, fashion, luxury, transportation, health, medical, a lot of products associated with all of that. That kind of product pipeline would have been labeled a pipe dream just a few years ago for someone like Apple. A lot of people would say, no way. There is no chance that Apple is going to enter the transportation industry. This is the main reason why I continue to think Apple's ambition is underestimated. But what happened was something changed over the past 10 years. I think it was the iPhone. The iPhone showed Apple how one product with a rethought user experience can change everything. It can change an industry and make it more suitable for Apple. The big implication from that is that Apple is going to be willing to compete in any industry as long as someone can rethink the user experience. We can look at the car industry, for example. Maybe 10, 15 years ago, it really wasn't possible for a company like Apple to rethink transportation. But when we look at the advances that a company like Tesla is making, we have self-driving systems continuing to be developed, electric cars, new ways of buying cars, new ways of using cars, of course, with Uber, Lyft, and other ride-sharing companies. Those are all items that are beginning to add chaos into the car industry. And that is something Apple really likes. Because that means Apple can shift the industry more towards their liking. All of that I don't think was possible prior to the iPhone. I think the iPhone gave Apple a new level of ambition that we still are trying to get our hands around. The second item has to do with control. The iPhone showed Apple the power that's found in controlling your own destiny. So we know that Apple is always about controlling software and hardware. 
But with the iPhone, Apple went further. It wasn't just about software and hardware, but it was about owning the core technologies powering that software and hardware. If you look at some of the early bets that Apple placed with the iPhone in mind, PA Semi, for example, in 2008, that acquisition, those bets are still paying dividends in 2017. Earlier this month, Tim Cook sat down with Business Week. This was right after the WWDC keynote. There were a number of topics covered. But one question caught my attention. And it had to do with Apple's culture. It had to do with what drives Apple. What motivates Apple. And so here's Tim Cook. It's a little bit of a long sentence, but I think it's important to go over it. The attention to detail, the care, the simplicity, the focus on the user and the user experience, the focus on building the best, the focus that good isn't good enough, that it has to be great, or in Steve Jobs' words, insanely great, that we should own the proprietary technology that we work with because that's the only way you can control your future and control your quality and user experience. So that's Tim Cook basically talking about the ingredients that make up Apple's culture. Notice how he included owning core technologies as part of that. I think the iPhone contributed quite a bit to that. We now have an increasing amount of evidence that Apple is working on its own GPU solution, LTE modem chips, and even beyond that, Apple isn't just really focused on owning core technologies, owning core components, but they're looking to come up with the solution that combines all of these units together, all of these components together. How else are we going to make wearable products that can be independent from the iPhone? I think that's an inevitable for Apple. We're not there yet from a technology perspective. But I think Apple's working at it. When we look at Apple's big bet of controlling both hardware and software for the iPhone, I think that gave Apple a 5-10 to 10 year head start on the competition. In 2017, we look at all of these competitors. They are still trying to figure out how to get around controlling both hardware and software. Samsung is struggling when it comes to software, when it comes to services. We have Google increasingly needing to bet on hardware. It's a mess. What's interesting about this, though, is the bets Apple is now making, not just really in hardware and software, but those core components, that is going to give Apple an advantage that is going to be measured in decades not just years, not just four or five years. And this is one reason why I do think the competition continues to underestimate Apple. There is still this feeling that Apple is kind of running on fumes with a product like the iPhone or that products like the Apple Watch, wireless AirPods, those are pretty easy products to manufacture. That seems to be this attitude out there. That, oh yeah, well, we can do that too if we wanted to. People don't want smartwatches, so we're not going to move into that industry. You hear some companies with that attitude. I think that's completely wrong. And I think that is underselling, that is ignoring, really, what Apple is doing in terms of piece by piece trying to control its destiny for these products. 
the iPhone played a very big role in giving Apple that motivation and showing Apple that it is possible to do this and that there are such significant benefits found with controlling your own destiny. I think people now are starting to realize, well, maybe Apple is actually onto something there. The third lesson that Apple learned from 10 years of iPhone has to do with platform. When you look at Wall Street, we still have an entity infatuated with iPhone sales. You have a lot of attention being put on these upcoming new iPhones and whether they can accelerate the upgrade rate, whether they can bring iPhone sales back to growth. While all of that's taking place, Apple continues to see a strengthening iOS platform. We have new iPhone user growth remaining pretty robust, and we have the developer community remaining engaged with iOS. And so what I think this has done is it's positioned the iOS platform as a very valuable tool for Apple. It lets Apple think about the world differently. And I think when you look at Apple management's commentary on this subject, they're well aware of this. They're well aware of the power and influence found with iOS. Eddie Q gave an interview over the summer last year in which he talked about Uber. And he said that Uber would not exist without the iOS platform. That's a powerful statement. It's not that EdiQ is saying Apple takes responsibility for Uber's success in rethinking personal transport. Instead, EdiQ is saying that the iOS platform served as a breeding ground for new innovative ideas and business models like Uber. So when you look at the iOS platform, I think Apple has played a major role in creating a number of new industries. And so in the coming years, I think one of management's tasks will be determining which parts of the iOS platform are worth Apple playing in themselves. Look at music, video streaming. Those are items. We have alternatives as it stands today. You could do Spotify. You could do Netflix, HBO. list goes on. It's clear that Apple wants to play in that industry. It's not that they necessarily want to compete head-to-head versus all those other companies. But they want to play in there. They think it's important enough for Apple to have its own solution. Of course, we could look at messaging, mobile payments, other industries that iOS really contributed to. Apple wants to play more themselves. If we go out a few years, it is certainly possible that Apple looks at something like ride-sharing or another large industry as something that makes sense for Apple to play in. Another benefit found with the iOS platform is that it serves as a stepping stone for Apple to create other platforms for third-party developers around a new suite of products. We could look at Apple TV, Apple Watch. It's not that iOS guarantees success with things like tvOS or watchOS. Instead, it has to do with the mentality. It has to do with the thought process. The iPhone and the broader third-party platform that it really gave birth to makes Apple view the world differently. So when they have new products to launch, this idea of launching another platform around it 
I think it's hard to see Apple do that in the same way without the iPhone having an influence over that strategy. With 10 years of iPhone sales now in the rearview mirror, a lot of people are beginning to look at what this product's legacy is going to be at Apple and what does the future hold. Most of the iPhone's success can be traced back to Apple placing one bet. And that bet was on a very big product category at just the right time. The smartphone redefined a computer for billions of people. And it was able to do this in just a few years. When we think about the future, it's very easy to come across people who say something like, nothing's going to match the smartphone in terms of a device that has such influence on our life. And I think what those kind of predictions do is they sell future innovations short. I think odds are very good that a new device or maybe a series of devices will serve as a smartphone alternative in the future. I actually think these devices can achieve even greater market penetration than smartphones. But I don't think that really matters. Regardless of what happens in the future, we are already starting to get a glimpse of the iPhone's legacy. The iPhone spawned an industry that redefined a computer. It transformed a computer from a niche tool into a mass market phenomenon. For Apple, I think the iPhone did even more. The iPhone went further than any other Apple product before it in terms of making technology more personal. And I think that's going to motivate Apple. The iPhone was Apple's first genuine mass market product. Nothing is going to change that. It doesn't matter what Apple does in the future. It doesn't matter what products Apple comes up with in the future. We already know what the iPhone was able to do. The most remarkable part of this story is that all of this occurred in just 10 years. That's going to do it for today's episode. If you enjoyed the type of Apple analysis found in these podcast episodes and in the weekly articles over at AboveAvalon.com, I think you'd be interested in becoming an Above Avalon member. The cornerstone of membership is access to my exclusive daily email all about Apple. Each email is about 2,000 words and covers two to three stories per day. One way of thinking about these emails is if something important happens in the world of Apple, we're going to talk about it. So it could be current news events. It could be something that an Apple competitor does and I think has implications in Apple. Of course, we go over Apple earnings, Apple keynotes. I have my Apple financial model. We often talk about changes to that. Above Avalon members also have the option of becoming part of the Above Avalon team in Slack. So you can chat with other Above Avalon members. Very often there is an active discussion going on about things that are impacting Apple and also broader tech stories. That is also where the archive exists. And so you can go back and read previous daily emails. To become an Above Avalon member, head on over to AboveAvalon.com and then go to the membership page. There are two options. It's either $10 per month or $100 per year. Sign up is very easy. You can do it on any laptop, desktop, or mobile device. Above Avalon is 100% supported by its members. So thank you if you're already a member, and thank you if you're considering becoming an Above Avalon member. 
with that, we will conclude today's episode. I will talk to you all next week. Bye.